0: you can turn in your bibles to exodus chapter 15 the book of exodus chapter 15 is where we'll be this morning as we wrap up this sermon series not on the whole book of exodus but just on this deliverance from egypt and it kind of wraps up with this song in chapter 15 verses 1 through 21 I'll begin by just pointing out that how we respond to things matters. We teach our children that. If someone gives a gift, we teach them that how you respond matters. Whether or not you like the gift, you say, thank you so much, I was very kind of you. You don't say, I don't like it. You know, how you respond to certain things matters. We know this in our relationships, <clears throat> when you're, Spouse asks how you like their new haircut, how you respond matters, not only what you say, but how you say it matters. How you respond matters at work, particularly how you respond to emails. The reply button is a powerful device. In 2016, the offices of Time Incorporated found out that the reply all button can be downright dangerous. In one instance, one of their photo editors sent a question to their HR department, and it was a question about certain monies that were supposed to go into certain funds that weren't showing up yet, so the editor had a question about why aren't they there and what's going on with that, just sending a question to HR, except uh, she did not send the question to HR, she accidentally sent it to the health and wellness listserv, which includes everyone's email and the entire company. The... HR representative employee did not catch that initial mistake and forwarded that question on to another employee asking for help and that that person also hit reply all accidentally, or not actually accidentally, but intentionally to show the original question asker that we're working on this, so you're looped in, except it looped everybody on the company in. And now everybody in the company was on the same thread, and from there, we're off to the races. Numerous employees made the critical mistake of also hitting reply all. Someone responded reply all, saying, hey, I have the same question. I would like an answer to that, too. And then somebody else responded, numerous people actually, hey, why am I on this thread? Can you please remove me? Reply all. And then so on and so forth, and now everybody who replies all furthers the thread, and the only way to stop it is to stop sending reply all So somebody tried to help. Clearly, we are all accidentally in this thread. This is an IT fix. Stop replying. And they hit reply all. (laughs) After which, several people hit reply all, asking to be removed from the thread. And at that point, the trolls seized their opportunity. One person hit reply all, keep us in the loop. I'm on the edge of my seat. And someone replied all, ditto. Another person hit reply all, notifying everyone they were selling Girl Scout cookies. And if anybody would like to take advantage of that. Someone else hit reply all saying, I found the solution to remove yourself from this email chain. Click here and then put a link to Rick Astley's Never Going to Give You Up. Finally, someone responded, You'll pry the reply all button from my cold, dead hands. How you respond matters, right? Makes a difference. That's a silly example, but we have a more serious, if not joyous example of a proper reply, a proper response in our text this morning. And certain actions call for certain responses, in our text this morning, we are responding to the salvation that God has provided, His mighty works displayed for all to see, and we are going to see an appropriate response, an appropriate reaction to what God has done. So we'll ask what's an appropriate response to God's works and miracles? How, what can we learn from that? I'll ask it this way How do God's people respond to His mighty works of salvation? How do God's people respond to his mighty works of salvation? When he comes down and he visits and he works miracles and does wondrous things on behalf of his people, how should people respond? And, and there's a lesson in here for us in this story, in this text this morning. It's an interesting text because it's kind of a break in the narrative, right? We were, just ending up with the finishing off the Exodus narrative and we're about to go into the wilderness wanderings and in the middle of that we have this song placed there. It might seem out of place, but it really is part of the story. Israel's response is part of the story of their redemption and it teaches us and instructs us just like any other part of the story. And this song of theirs is all about God. Through and through, it's a song about God and what he has done. As one commentator said, it is from the beginning, praise to God for his power. So that's really what the song is all about, the power of God and his mighty works. And to wrap our heads around it, I want to break it up into three sections that can instruct us and teach us. And these three sections will teach us how we can respond as Christians. And they might answer the question for us, why do we sing all the time? How do we sing? How do God's people respond to his mighty works of salvation? First, verses 1 through 12, we see the Israelites praise through remembering. That's the first way they would respond. They praise through remembering. They recall the things that God has done. They recall his mighty works of salvation he has done in the past. They praise through remembering. Verse 1. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth. Swallowed them. This song is often titled the song of Moses or the song of the sea because it's the song they sang right after they crossed the Red Sea. And I think historically that's actually true. I think this is a song that was pretty immediately sung after they crossed over. Uh, The word then indicates there in verse 1 that this is the next thing they did. After they were delivered, they sang together. It was more or less an immediate response to the salvation they had experienced through the sea that crushed the Egyptians. So very likely what happened is after they passed through, they sang an initial version of the song, and then probably over the years it was edited, adjusted, and built upon as it was passed down from generation to generation. And I think it was finally kind of canonized and finalized likely after they entered into the land of Canaan and after the conquest. That's my theory. That's how the song was put together. And then after then it was written down to be preserved for all time. But you'll notice here that this song is all about God. It's all about his attributes and what he has done. And I want to talk through a few of those things that the song talks about these attributes of God, what God has done. First, you'll notice that God is praised for his triumph in war. The first one says he has triumphed, triumphed gloriously. His victory was something for all to see. Uh, if, if you play golf, you, you know that a hole in one doesn't count unless somebody is there to see it. Right? If, unless somebody's there to see it, it didn't happen. Well, that's true with this triumph of God. But people have seen it. It was witnessed. It was glorious. People saw what God has done. It is on display for all to see that God's strong right hand has shown his glory by shattering the enemy. God meted out justice and vengeance on his enemies. The text calls him a man of war. Literally a warrior. God is a warrior. And that's why we praise him. Because he has won the battle. He has thrown horse and rider into the sea. When it says that, it's saying, God threw the agent and the instrument into the sea. So we ask the question, do guns kill people or do people kill people? And they might ask back then, do riders kill people or do chariots kill people? And is it the agent or the instrument? And God conquers both. He eliminates the whole threat. Egypt with their horses and riders and chariots were a threat to Israel and God has thrown them out and cast them down. They have sunk like a rock, like a stone, like lead. God is praised here because he's a mighty warrior who battles and defeats the enemy. Second, like you'll notice that God is praised and remembered for his righteous fury. They recall how God is a God who is righteous in his wrath and anger and fury. Verse says, You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. It's a picture of a land being like burnt and laid to waste. I grew up in Washington, and when I was a child in the early 90s, we went and visited Mount St. Helens. You might remember Mount St. Helens if you're old enough. In 1980, it erupted, right? That was five years before I was born. It erupted. But I went as a child in the early 90s and saw all the wreckage that was still there from the eruption. If you go to the, went to the site at that time, you could see all the trees snapped like toothpicks, covering the ground, just complete destruction, right? That's stubble. It was laid waste. And that's what God did in his fury. He laid waste to the Egyptians like stubble. And I think there's also a little bit of a wordplay there or maybe a a jab at the Egyptians because what did they make the Israelites make their bricks out of? So, turnabout is fair play. Now the Egyptians are stubble because of the blast of God's nostrils. We know that God is a spirit. He does not literally have a nose or nostrils, but this is a an image, a metaphor for his fury. You think of somebody huffing and puffing, and with their nostrils flared. It's a picture of his righteous anger, and it is that anger that blew him from his nostrils that parted the waters. And what this tells us is that that parting of the sea was an act of God's fury. That was an act of his righteous anger that parted the sea and brought it back in on the Egyptians that God controlled creation so that the waves crashed, so that the earth swallowed up the Egyptians, as verse 12 states. God has done this with his righteous fury. Third, the song praises God's past works and the fact that God is supreme over all. He is the one who rules. He is sovereign. The enemy thought they could contend. In verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. The enemy of the Egyptians went out in arrogance, thinking that they could conquer. But God is the God over all. There is no one like him, as verse 11 asks, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who else could have done this? And the answer is no one. No other gods can do this. All other spiritual powers, all other spiritual beings, all the gods that the foreign nations might worship, as powerful as they may be and as helpless as we as humans may be before them, they are no match for our God. He is singular. And he has dominion over all. Verse 7 says... In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. And I love the way that's worded. Verse 7 In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your enemies. Another way of saying it is because you are king, you conquered. That is the act of a king. That's what good kings do they conquer their enemies on behalf of their people, keeping their people safe. We look back through our own history. Who are the presidents that we look back on fondly and as our greatest presidents? It's the one who, ones who won wars. The Washingtons or Lincolns. The great leaders are those who have protected their people. We think of men like Churchill who confronted Hitler. Those who have won the battle, who have defeated threats and kept their people safe. That is an aspect of kingship that is essential, that you conquer enemies. That is what Israel expected from their future king, their Messiah, their Christ that would come, that he would be one who would conquer their enemies. That's all throughout the Old Testament, that a king will come who will conquer our enemies for us. Because that's what kings do, and that's what God has done in the Red Sea. And fourth, notice how personal all of this is. Though God is above all, He is great, He is supreme, He is the one who conquers. At the same time, His works are personal. He is my God, my salvation. Verse 2 The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The whole point of all these miraculous and wondrous works of God is that they're done for me, that He is powerful. For me, that He has conquered for me. It's a victory won for me. God is part of the seas, judged His enemies so that I could walk through them on dry land. He has saved me. As God's children, we don't know God only as Creator and Lord, we now also know Him as Savior and friend, and personal redeemer. that all these mighty works aren't just done in a vacuum. They're done out of love because God personally loves us and redeems us. He does wonderful and miraculous things for us. So He is our song, our strength, our salvation. We praise Him through remembering all that He has done for us. As we think about this praise, there are a couple of things I just point out by way of application I was thinking about. One, notice how specific the wording of this song is. It's very specific, it tells about specific things that God has done specific details, that he has done these things. He has thrown over horse and chariot and rider. It's not just a general goodness of God. This is specifically what he has done in history for me. This is maybe one of my just soft critiques of a lot of modern Christian songs, is that they're very general and vague. Very often, they're they're very generic, as if they could be sung about any god. That God just generally loves me, and generally he's great and wonderful, but they don't get into specifics, and I think it's necessary to get into specifics so that we know which God we're talking about, which God are we praising, which God are we singing to. We need to know specifically it's this God, a God who, unlike any other, who couldn't have done these things. So when we're singing for minutes on end, oh, how he loves me, it makes me want to ask, how? How? How has he loved me? We keep singing it. How has God loved us? This song answers. He has loved us. How? By throwing horse and rider into the sea for us. He has done this specifically for us. It's not a generic kind of thing that we can sing about any God. It's specific about our God. That He alone is singular. And that specificity is important because it shows that we know him and we remember what he has done, that we actually love him. So if you ask me, why do you love your wife? What do you love about her? And I just say, oh, she's really lovely. And that might be true, but it doesn't say all that much. And if you say, "Well, what? No, what do you really love about her?" It's like, "Well, she's just really great." That would be a poor answer. I should be able to give you specifics about what I love about my wife, and if I'm not able to, it might tell you that I don't actually love her all that much or know all that much about her. The specifics make the relationship. That's how you know you love that person and what makes them unique in your eyes. Here's how he loved us. He took care of our enemies when we could not. this is what we love about God. It's what we love about Jesus. It's what the New Testament does. The New Testament over and over gives us specific things that Jesus has done and we worship him for. So we turn to Colossians 1, and we have specific information about Jesus in this hymn of praise. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is a song specifically about Jesus that could be sung about nobody else. There is no one else who fits that bill. He is the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things, through whom all things were created, holding the world together by his power. That fits Jesus alone. It is specific about him. Colossians 2 tells us specifically how Jesus is conquered. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is specific about what Jesus has done on the cross for us. It is not a vague general, I love you, Jesus. It is a specific, I love you, Jesus, because you have conquered our enemies, my enemies, on the cross. And Revelation 5, tells us specifically what Jesus has done. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is something that only Jesus has done, that specifically Jesus has done. He has ransomed a people from every tribe and made them a kingdom of priests. You see how important that specificity is. What have you actually done? This is what Jesus has actually done. is what God has done. And we note that as we sing this song, this song of remembrance, it is thoroughly about God. You look at verses 6 through 10 and notice how many times you and your is said. Yes, it's a personal song. God is my strength, my deliver, my salvation. But it's about God, about what he has done. This is the essence of worship. It's that about him. It's about him and not us. True worship boasts about God, brags on God. That's so what it means to be worshipers. We, we might be hesitant about bringing attention to ourselves. We should be as Christians. We're, we're meek and humble about ourselves. And Paul in 2 Corinthians, he doesn't want to talk about himself or brag about himself, right? But he'll brag about God. So we can be quiet when talking about ourselves, but when we talk about God, we boast and we're loud and we proclaim because he is awesome and above and we make everything about him. And that should affect how we act as a church. It should affect how we worship as a church. It should affect if you ever get to one day of the point where you're at another church, you move or you're looking for a church. Find a church that is about God. Your selfish heart will want to find a church about you. We all have selfish hearts that want to make everything about us and find a place where, man, this whole thing is about me. This makes me feel so wonderful. Run from that church. Find a church that is about God, that worships God. When you walk in the door, you recognize that this is about the Lord here. They are giving their praise to Him. and, and Make that your home. And you will find that as you find a church that worships God, it will love people well because that's what it means to worship God, to love people well. It will fulfill that heart of yours. We were designed for worship and to praise and Him and worship him and praise him for all that he has done, and also to praise him for all that he will do. And that's the next section, verses 13 through 18. First, the song praises God through remembering. Second, we see praise through anticipating. Praise through anticipating. The next section looks forward to what God will do and anticipates God's mighty works of salvation. Verse 13. So the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Verse thirteen talks about the guiding and leading hand of the Lord, and God guides and leads with what is called steadfast love, and this is one of those. Hebrew words you should know. You don't know, need to know many Hebrew words, but this is one you should know. The word for steadfast love is chesed. Uh, it's that word of covenantal faithfulness, Hesed. It's God's covenant, unfailing, committed love. It's the, the commitment we aspire to when we make our vows in marriage through sickness and death and... For richer or poorer, that we will be together. That's a covenant commitment. That's Has said, I will love you forever. And I will be with you forever. And that's the kind of love that God has for His people. It's covenant faithfulness, steadfast love, Has said. And in that Has said, that love for His people, steadfast love, He redeems His people. He, it's the whole story that we've worked through. God has purchased His people and bought them from captivity and made them His own. He made His people, He redeemed them. And now he will guide and lead them. And I would submit to you that this guiding and leading that it talks about is not something so much that has been done in the past, but something that will be done. That God has guided and led. But that as it talks about it in the song that it's actually referring to the guiding and leading that will take place in the future. And it uses, the song uses past tense verbs to talk about the future guiding and leading of God to speak of it as if it has already happened. It is so certain that God will guide and lead, so certain that he will lead us home, that the song talks about it as if it's already happened. He has led us, he has guided us to his holy place. I think I'll prove to you why I think this is a future thing that the song is talking about. So you look at verses 14 through 16. Who are the people that stand in the way that will be terrified by God? Philistia trembles in terror. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. The leaders of Moab tremble. The inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Those are all people that the Israelites at this point in the story have not encountered yet, but will. Right? They've just crossed the sea. They haven't encountered yet the Philistines, the Moabites, the um, Edomites, the Canaanites, but they will. Those are all the people they're going to encounter before they enter the Promised Land. These are the people they're going to be warring with along the way. And what the text is saying, what the song is saying, is those people are already afraid, they're already trembling before our mighty God. And God is already, he has already led us through them. It's talking about how God will surely lead us through everything that might terrify us. They, in fact, will be terrified along the way. Then you notice in verse 17, the tenth switches. It talks about what God will do. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, a sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. See, now we have a, a, an explicit promise of what God will do. He will lead us through and plant us on his mountain. In ancient religious thinking, the pagan gods, various gods, would have their own mountains. You know, If you wanted to visit with a god or worship before him, you'd go up the mountain. So in ancient Israel, when they committed idolatry, they'd go up to the high places with their Asherah poles and worship Asherah and other gods of the high places. So the high places in Israel almost became synonymous with idolatry. They would go up the mountain. Or you think of the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel, that mountain maybe specifically associated with Baal. Or you think of Mount Olympus and the Greek pantheon, and apparently Mount Olympus was supposed to be their home, right? So in that thinking, the gods lived on the mountains, and this text says, God, you have a mountain. You have your holy place, your mountain, your dwelling place that you are taking your people to, and you will establish them there. And the question is, which mountain is that? Like, which mountain is God's mountain? And what's being referred to here? Is it Mount Sinai, which they're going to go to first and receive the law? It could be. Or it could be Mount Zion, where Solomon's temple will be, when they were... God will dwell there in the temple. Or the mountain of God, his holy dwelling place, could refer to kind of all of Jerusalem, the whole promised land even, all of Canaan, because it's a, it's a mountainous place, it's hilly, and Jerusalem itself is kind of on a mountain. Or maybe this is referring to some future sanctuary, some future dwelling place of God, that that's God's mountain. And, and I would submit to you that all of those places are God's mountain that this is talking about how God is going to lead his people through many places, and wherever God goes and they are with him, that is his dwelling place, that is his holy abode, until finally he settles them in his holy place. And we have the same promise and hope that God will lead us to his holy dwelling place and his abode, right? Do, isn't that our hope? That's the promise of Jesus. John fourteen three. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So we have the same hope as the Israelites that God will lead them to his holy mountain. We have the same hope that God will establish us in his holy place and we know Jesus is preparing a place for us there where we will live under the peaceful rule of God forever. And that is our hope. We not only praise God for what he has done, we praise God for what we know he's going to do for the salvation that he will provide later on as he takes us home. And as we praise God for what he will do, we find that it actually starts to shape our expectations. That it creates hope in us. That It shapes and forms us that actually as we worship, we don't just worship from our heart to God. We worship and find that God shapes our heart. So there are Sunday mornings, and I have them and you have them. There are Sunday mornings we wake up and we just don't really feel like coming to church. There are Sunday mornings we wake up and we're tired, we're cranky, not really in the mood to worship. We all have those. We're human, right? We're falling, and maybe we just didn't get enough sleep the night before, whatever it may be. We can sometimes wake up and just, I'm not in the mood to worship and praise again. I have those mornings too, but I forced to be here. Like, I'm paid, right? So I have to come. And what I find every time, I'm glad I'm forced to come because every time I might wake up and say, man, I'm not in the mood today. It doesn't matter what my mood is because as it turns out, worship gets me there. Like, worship puts me in the right mood. Worship gives me joy. It shapes my mindset. It shapes my anticipation and my hope. So I might come in dreadful, weary, worried about the things of the world, and I come and I find that I worship with God's people, I read scripture, we, we take communion together, we do all these things, and I leave hopeful because worship actually changes me. We don't worship just because it pleases God, though it does. We worship also because it shapes our outlook and our mindset, and it changes us. And we're reminded as we think about what God has in store for us in the future, and the home that he has prepared, we're reminded that what he has planned for us is much, much bigger and better than whatever it is we're going through now. What we're going through right now might be a lot. But worship places our hearts and minds on the holy hill of God. And we have hope because that's much better. It's much bigger than whatever our present trial may be. That's what Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We praise anticipating future glory that God will lead us home just as he did the Israelites and just as they anticipated. And lastly, more briefly, we praise through remembering, we praise through anticipating, and we praise through repeating. We praise through repeating, and that's what happens in the last couple of verses. It repeats what we've already said. The truths are repeated over and over, even with different singers. We praise through repeating. Verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So verse 19, you'll notice, just repeats the truths that have already been sung about, and it's actually just a summary of God's salvation that was provided in the Red Sea. Part of the waters, crushed the Egyptians, we walk through on dry ground. Like, that's the summary of God's salvation, his mighty works. And then... Miriam comes in, and the Song of Moses becomes the Song of Miriam. And she leads women in dancing and the tambourine. Uh, We know from this text here that Miriam is the sister of Aaron, which would make her the sister of Moses. It may be that she was the one way back in the beginning of Exodus who saved Moses and helped raise him in the courts. We don't know for sure if that's Miriam, but she's the sister of Moses and Aaron, and she's a prophetess who leads the women in song. There are a few female prophets in the Old Testament, Deborah and Judges, Holda and 2 Kings, a couple others. And all of them had the same job as any other prophet, to speak the word of God, not to create a message, but to repeat what God has said. And that's what Miriam does here. She repeats what God has already said. You'll notice she repeats verse 1 and verse 21. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. It's a repeat of verse 1, and note the way it's worded. She sings to them, Miriam sings to them, and says, sing to the Lord. So it's almost like this call and response, this antiphonal kind of thing. And if you've ever been in a church that's sung like Prince of Peace, and the men sing and the women respond, or that kind of thing, that's what's going on here. It's the whole congregation of Israel singing together and repeating what has already been sung. And and it got me thinking, like, why is this here? Why do we have this repetition right at the end? Why do we have verse 1 restated again? And I think, here's why, I think it's supposed to indicate to us that this song is never supposed to end. Like the old Lamb Chop song, Right? a song that never ends. It keeps repeating over and over again, and it's an instruction for us. and invites us in. That song itself invites us to repeat the song over and over and over throughout generations to pass it down. Uh, I was thinking about this between services, actually. That sometimes when you have kids, you get tired of hearing the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, our son, before he grew in his vocabulary, uh, basically just said ta-ta all the time. And there was a time where we were just desperate for him to learn words. We could stop hearing ta-ta over and over because that was his word for everything. Ta-ta, ta-ta. And after a while, you start to go crazy. But then you hear this song and you realize the Lord doesn't react like we do. He loves hearing us say the same thing over and over again. He instructs us to. He wants us to sing the song over and over again. And in fact, He gives us examples throughout His Word, throughout Scripture, that sing the same song over and over and over again. Throughout Scripture, there are songs all over, and they're the same song over and over. So you get the the Psalms, and they're the same songs over and over about God's wonderful works and His mighty displays of power. And you have Psalm 106, which looks back upon this song and this experience. Psalm 106, 8 through 12, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. Same themes over and over, God's power and his mighty works, even in surprising places like the songs of Hannah and Mary. The song of Hannah is sung as she's praying for God to give her a son, and finally God agrees. And she sings a song that basically Mary repeats when she's promised a son. So these are songs about being given a son, being given a future. And notice what Mary sings about. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Is that the lullaby you sang to your kid when he was an infant? It's a song of anticipation of the sun, but it's the same song of God's mighty work and God's power and salvation. And there are many songs like that throughout Scripture. I'll point out one last song for you. It's in the book of the Bible that has the most songs outside of the Psalms. And that book is Revelation. The book of Revelation has more songs in it than any other book outside of the Psalms themselves. It's a hymn book. And Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4 say, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass, an interesting image, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. They, too, had instruments. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's interesting, it's called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. It doesn't quote the Song of Moses. And the Lamb, Jesus Christ, was born hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Moses. But their songs are the same. Because they have the same truths, the same themes, that no one is like our God. He is the King of the nations, that he is mighty and glorious and the nations tremble before him. And his mighty works of salvation have been revealed to us. And we sing that same song, right? We can take the song of Moses and sing it because it is the song of the Lamb. And we can sing it because we're in the same spot as the Israelites. We're in the same place that they are. We have seen God's mighty works of salvation through the Red Sea, through the cross, we have seen God destroy his enemies when the water crashed down, when Jesus rose from the grave and conquered our enemies, sin and death and the devil. We've seen God save us and spare us from judgment and death, save us from the waters of judgment, save us from the judgment to come. We see God's rule over the nations, both as the enemies of Israel trembled before him and as Jesus rules on the throne at the Father's right hand. And we stand in God's covenantal, faithful love as we wait for him to take us home to his promised land, to our heavenly home with Jesus forever. All along the way, he'll sanctify us and carry us through and lead us and guide us as we sing praises, remembering what he's done, anticipating what he will do, and repeating it over and over again. Would you pray with me? My Father, God, thank you for the song that you give to us. We're only able to sing a song because we have some triumph, not in ourselves, not in our own power, but a triumph by your grace and by your Son, ultimately. Thank you that you are a God who has triumphed so we can go boldly, even while humbly, looking to you, knowing that our God is King. Lord, I pray that we would sing that song today, that no matter what troubles us or ails us or what um, causes us stress or anxiety, that we can look to you and sing praise because our God is a conquering king. And I pray that you would establish us in faith, establish us in your word, and carry and guide and lead us home. And we look forward to that day when we will be with you forever in your sanctuary. Amen.